We'll turn this on. Wendy, it's now turned on. We hope that I don't turn it off. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. I also, uh, it's one of those little things that only me as a teacher and a nerd is just excited about. I finally got a uh, clicker for my PowerPoint on my iPad, <laughs> which is just, Cindy will tell you, I was just like, ah, it works. And it worked well at Education Week, so I am, I am pretty happy with that. Uh, okay, now as we start this week, uh, and as we start the, the new uh, uh, semester, I want to do a couple of things in preparation that will hopefully make things, uh, your study of the scriptures a little bit uh, uh, more full. One of the things that we tend to do in the church is we, we can be fairly fast about saying, you need to read a, a chapter a day, or I'm reading two chapters a day, or I'm going to read for 20 minutes. And we can cover a lot of ground in there, but my fear is that sometimes that method of study leaves out uh, some of the, the most important parts that will enable you to understand what you're reading. So I want to, as we start the semester, I want to just remind you of a couple of things. So there's a couple of keys to understanding Scripture that I want to emphasize. One is that it's important to read in context. And I'm going to try, uh, as an instructor this semester, to try and always bring up context when we're looking at a scripture. For instance, you can't read the, the Doctrine and Covenants if I said, why don't you read and, and love section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Well, what do you need to know if you're getting ready to read section 19? What would make that more rich for you? The background. What was going on in, in the, the history of the church right at that moment? What factors were influencing that? What else? Who was it written to? Who's he talking to? Okay, so we got to know, first of all, who's writing. We need to know who are they writing to? Now, I just mentioned the Doctrine and Covenants. When, if, if, if you're going to go to uh, uh, the New Testament, you're going to go to uh, Romans, and here's Paul saying such and such. We're, first of all, we're recognizing who's writing. Paul. Who's he writing to? Romans. Romans. Yeah, very nice. See, that one's easier. Uh, but what was going on in Rome? What's he responding to? What are the questions? What are the response? What are they trying to do? What's he worried about? Why is he receiving the revelations that he's receiving? All of those become pretty important. So who are they writing to? What was the current situation or problem that prompted the revelation? The Lord gives inspiration and revelation in response to a problem or in response to a certain thing that needs to occur. So we need to understand, if we would understand the scripture, what was the situation, the problem that prompted this revelation to this prophet, and then watch very closely the, the approach. Why is this prophet speaking to this group and choosing this way to say it? And then you be, in the same way that we might say, uh, well, we had Elder Holland or Elder Oaks on Saturday night. Um, what's the situation he's responding to? <coughs> yeah, the, the 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 pushback of religious liberty against those of faith. Okay, who was he speaking to? Everyone. Yes, but particularly to us as a group. And, and how? What was his approach? 
He was trying to teach us about what to say and how to say it. Because did he bring a bunch of other apostles with him? It's interesting the crew that he chose to bring with him. Who did he bring? Lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Who, who was saying, this is going to be a very legalistic battle. Because the battle is going to be fought ultimately where? In the courts. In the courts. So we've got to have religious liberty attorneys that know how to phrase the, what, we're, what we're battling. Okay? All right. Now, let me add one other layer. And this is more, to, more is just a background. It's something that I've been kind of aware of. Um, let, if I pick any verse... Like, I'm about to go to Alma 4. We're going to talk about the lead-in to Alma 5. Okay? So if I look at, at Alma 4, how did that verse, how did I end up reading that verse? Why don't you just kind of, just for a second, I want you to walk through step by step. How did we get the verses in Alma 4 to a point where we could read them? First of all, where'd they come from? The prophet wrote it. When did he probably write it? Probably after he spoke it, right? Oft times they're either, they're either writing it in, or in the case of Alma 5 or Jacob, he gives a talk. Then it says that he's going to go home and he's going to put it in his record. Now we do know that there's pretty good, pretty good evidence to the fact that they probably spoke one language, uh, possibly Mayan or a mix of that whatever was local but they wrote in the sacred records in what language? Reformed Egyptian. This was something that those that wrote in the records had to know this specialized language to be able to record things. And why Reformed Egyptian? Why? <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. It was efficient in what way? In the sense they could write, it, it was, they could write fairly briefly. Yes. Because if you look at Egyptian, Egyptian is symbols. And if we look at even the caricatures that were coming off of, of the, the characters of the plates themselves, is in symbols. And it represented certain things. So he's writing in Reformed Egyptian. They changed it a little bit. It's not straight Egyptian. It's Reformed Egyptian. So he's taking what he wrote and he's using symbols to represent it, which means depending on who's reading it, they could see it a variety of ways. Okay? So Alma then writes it. He speaks it in whatever language. He writes it down in Reformed Egyptian. Then who's the next person to touch it? Mormon. As Mormon's doing the abridgment, he's looking at what Alma wrote and he's now translating it into uh, what he's trying to write, along with probably some editing and some including. Okay, So now it lands in the hands of Mormon, who's now putting it on a set of plates so it can go towards the future. So now Mormon is, has translated, it's on the plates. Who's now the next person to touch it? Joseph Smith. Ah! So here's one of those things we need to keep in mind. Did Joseph Smith translate the plates? No. How did, how did we get what is in our scriptures from Joseph Smith? If it wasn't a translation, it was a revelation. 
Most of the time, he never used the plates directly. He didn't. A lot of times with Oliver Cowdery, the plates sat on the, on the table in front of them with a handkerchief on the top of it. And, he, and Joseph is looking in seer stones for a while. That was his spiritual training wheels. Then we didn't need the seer stone anymore. It was just Joseph. But it's, but he's, it's being texted to his brain. <laughs> a few lines at a time. About seven words, we think. Now, let me just mention one other thing that has really come to light more and more since we, since we spoke last. This has become more and more fantastic as I think about it. We have currently uh, re uh, recovered in... There's a great mystery that's out there right now in Mormon scholarship. Scriptural scholarship about the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's some wonderful work that's been done by uh, Royal Skousen at BYU. And here's what they've been doing. Because all these books of the, that have ever been written in history, we're now being able to digitize them. So we now have them all on computer. It makes it possible that you can do a computer search of, every, of all the books that have been written. It's this mega search and go back through everything. So it's not just reading, you know, uh, Mark Twain, but Shakespeare and, uh, and the Christ Christian fathers and stuff like that. So uh, we can very quickly do a mega search of words. Where do they come from? Well, Royal Skousen at BYU has done this amazing study and came up with a mystery that we don't have, that we're going to have a really hard time solving. And that is, he started taking some of the idioms that we find in the Book of Mormon. It's like, that's a weird word. Where'd that word come from? Or a weird phrase. Where did that word come from? Or a, why is that tense being used here? And, and all these strange little things that came up in the Book of Mormon. And, he, and he's been able to do a mega search of everything that's been written because everything's digitized. Why is this important? Well, if the Book of Mormon that we have was, was uh, completely written in the language of the time, like if we're reading the book of uh, Moroni, what, what uh, language style of what age should that book be written in? Around the year plus? Around, yeah, exactly right. Okay? It should be written a couple of centuries after Christ because they had a style of writing back then that is recognizable. Okay? Or, as so many people that attack the church would claim, no, it was written by somebody in the 19th century, whether it was uh, Solomon Spalding or Oliver Cowdery or Martin Harris. I mean, somebody wrote this. We don't think it was Joseph. He's too stupid. <laughs> so it's got to be somebody else. And they would have written it in the 19th century style. So that means that we should be finding in these writings a 19th century style of the Book of Mormon. And the idioms and phrases that are used should match the 19th century. And it does not. The phrases that we're finding are not 19th century. They are not 600 A.D. They are 11th and 12th century phrases. A.D. A.D. 12th century. And they're going, nobody expected this. Um, the fun speculation that, uh, and there's no way of, that, that Royal Skousen was throwing out just kind of for fun, but it does make you think a little bit, is he says, 
Well, maybe there was like, like a, on the other side of the veil, a translation committee. <laughs> <laughs> Consisting of people like William Tinsdale. <laughs> Uh, and those guys that, that did the original translations in the Bible back in those early centuries. And maybe they're the ones that are sending the text to Joseph Smith while he's sitting looking in the seer stone. And they're using their, their phrases and their idioms. Kind of a fun thought. But we don't know. And it is a, it's a conundrum. It's a mystery. We have no idea why it is this that way. All right. So I just want you, but I do want you to think that certainly then for it, these verses that we have came from Alma. He said them. He wrote them down uh, in his whatever language. Mormon is then going to take this record. He's going to write it down. He's going to add his inspiration to it. Joseph Smith is going to now add to it. He will write it down as it's being revealed to him. And now we have one more layer. Say Joseph Smith added to it. He, it, it could be as he's as it, what he's hearing in his head is how this is supposed to be written. But remember, this is Reformed Egyptian. It's a series of symbols. It isn't a word-by-word -word translation, even in the Revelation. So there's going to be a he's receiving inspiration and a revelation as to what this verse is actually supposed to be. And I'll show you why we know that in just a second. Okay. So, but there is one more layer. Where does the next layer of translation go to? Us. Us. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the final layer of this is it comes to you in your heart, in your situation, in your life, and it is being translated by the Spirit to say, this is what this verse means to you. Let me ask, how many times have you read something in the scriptures and you may have read it a thousand times, but given on what's going on in your life right at that moment, it just leaps. And you go, I didn't know that was there. Where in the heck did that come from? Well, it's been there every time you read it. <laughs> it's just that what's different this time? Yeah, you're different. Your situation, what's going on with you, that is a unique place where you are at this moment and it gets translated that one last time into your heart. And now it means something to you and something different to me. Isn't that amazing? Scripture is that way and we're going to really see that in just a second as it goes through the minds of several prophets. Is that, questions on any of that? Is that like thoroughly befuddled? Okay. That said then, So let's, let's begin, if we're going to look in context, let's start off now with uh, looking at let's go to Alma 4. Why do we have Alma 5? Why do we have Alma 6? Why do we have Alma 7? Why do we have Alma 8? The reason for it is all found in Alma 4. And it came to pass that Alma, having seen the affliction of the humble followers of God, and think about the religious liberty thing we just heard, uh, the persecutions that were heaped upon them by the remainder of the people, and seeing their inequality, began to be sorrowful. Okay? So, he's going to give up the, the uh, being the chief judge. He's going to hold on to the becoming um, 
the, uh, he's going to maintain being the high priest, but he's now going to go out, and here's what he's responding to. In the eighth year of the reign of the judges, there began to be great contentions among the people. Look at the contentions. The great contentions were where? In the church. Did that have an? But the outflow problem was of the church. There were envies and strifes and malice and pride, even to exceed those that didn't belong to the church. So in ten, the wickedness of the church becomes a great stumbling block to that's outside the church. Our wickedness inside is affecting in waves coming outward. Okay, and thus the church began to fail in its progress. Who's going to join a church where there's all this fighting going on? Eleven, the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers onto one piece of iniquity to another. Because of the wickedness of the church, the people on the outside got more wicked. Okay, stop for a second. Why is religious liberty and the rights of religious organizations critical to a society? It gives the society some moral standards. It does give society a moral standard, even to who don't believe. The morality and the standards of the church, people inside the church, is a leaven in the lump, as Elder Oaks talked about, that would affect those on the outside. It gives a it gives a pillar. It enables them to kind of do what they do because they're people that do what they're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? You become critical. That's why religious organizations and churches are vital to a community. And that's what the brethren are trying to say. Um, and, 11, that began to lead believers onto one piece of iniquity to another, and thus bringing on what? Wow, that's pretty high stakes. The destruction of the people. It's not just, well, they're just not going to do bad things. We tend to know when people get this level of wicked, what happens? They are destroyed. They are destroyed. So we're trying to save society by trying to save the, the iniquity of the people by trying to make the church more righteous. Now, tell me again why it is that religious liberty is so important. <laughs> we're trying to save society. That's what we're trying to do. There's no other way to say that. Okay? Alright, now, but there was one other problem. And, and we always know, and we've said over and over, there are two things in the Book of Mormon and with Israel that always result in the destruction of a city and a people. You do these two things, you are toast, count on it, write them off. Number one is going to be wickedness, right? Which generally leads to stoning of prophets. That's number one. What's the other one? Not providing for the poor. If you kill the prophets and starve the poor, you're toast. Your city is going away. And he's going, here, part of this inequality that he saw was, he saw great inequality among the people, some lifting up their pride, verse 12. Despising others, turning their backs on the needy and the naked, and those were hungry and athirst, and those were sick and afflicted. They were starving the poor. And that will get you destroyed. The Lord loves his poor and his needy. And he requires that we find a way to take care of them. And he holds it at our hands if we don't. There will always be poor among us. Until we get Zion when there's no poor there because we have a better way of handling that. Okay? 
All right. Make sense so far? All right. So, let's now go to Alma 5. But before I do, so let's take it in context. First of all, who's going to be speaking here? Jim. Alma is, right? And who's Alma? Alma the Younger. This is Alma the Younger. He is the high priest of the church. How did we get to be Alma being the high priest of the church? He was consecrated by his father. What's Alma's history? He's a persecutor. He used to be a persecutor of, of the church. Okay. So we've got this guy that has had this marvelous... Think they know about that in town? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Alma's going to be well known. Okay. And his buddies are... The sons of Mosiah. Where are they? Oh, they're off preaching. Okay, so... So now, here comes, so here, this is the beginning. In order to save all of this, Alma's going to start this big reformation project. He can begin to try and move forward. Uh, they're getting more wicked, so he's going to take this show on the road. But the first place he's going to take it is going to be where? Where does he start? What city? Zarahemla. Okay, so Alma's preaching. So he's starting in Zarahemla. What would we know about Zarahemla? Yeah, so it was founded by the Mulekites. It is the Nephite capital. Are these people uh, city dwellers or, or rural people? They're city dwellers. Are they probably more educated or less? More. more. Are they probably wealthier or poorer? Wealthy. Wealthier. This would be like President Monson starting this Reformation thing starting in Salt Lake uh, or Provo or something like that. In other words, he's going, so he's going into the more educated group to start this Reformation process. So understand, he's talking to a very uh, literate, educated, uh, more prideful, more um, wealthy population and that's going to determine how he approaches this. All right. Kevin, yeah. It's also like uh, President Oaks and all those other people on Saturday night are talking about it's a pluralistic society. It is. And and in fact, we know that in this in this pluralistic society uh, that we have several factions and these factions are going to become more prominent as we go along here. But we've got so it was founded by the Mulekites, so we still have people that are descended from Zarahemla still living in the city. Who else is here? Yeah. What other groups make up Zarahemla? Oh, the Mulekites. Okay, Mulekites and which Nephites? Remember, there is, there is a group here that would have come with Alma and are the descendants. It's one generation down from those that were baptized in the waters of Mormon, lived in the land of Helam, and, they were, and, and they're, in, they're in Zarahemla. And he's going to be talking a lot to those people. Is there another group? King Limhi's people. Okay, and, and I think we're going to find next week that those people uh, who were King Limhi had, and, and they had their, their great uh, 
nice general Gideon who, who ends up being uh, killed by uh, Korahor. Okay? And they're going to be, and so there's a city of Gideon over there in the land of Melech. Oh, wow! Isn't that interesting? They're probably over there. Okay, so more than, more than likely, he's primarily talking to those in the church, it looks like, that are descendants for, that his father brought out of the land of Nephi. Okay, and because and, what? Listen to his verbiage. Uh, these are the words he spake, verse 2, according to his own record. So this is Alma writing down what he said. All right, I, Alma, gang, having been consecrated by my father... Uh, to be high priest. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm not going to take the time to go into this, but if you look at the, the timing of this, he's actually been high priest for seven years, and he's going to start having a discussion here about things that they need to do. There's a suggestion that this might be part of a jubilee year, uh, that he's having this discussion within the jubilee celebration of, of Israel's uh, festival uh, celebrations. But I, I'm not, I don't have... Talking about the 50th year? Yeah, yeah. We may be hitting the 50th year, and you're going to do it after the last seven-year cycle, because he's, he's doing this after seven years, okay? So, all right. It's one of those times we have to pick and choose which uh, thing we're going after. All right, now. I've been consecrated by high priests. I have authority to do this. Now. Listen to how he goes. Listen, he, he's going to approach a very literate people. Now, if, I, if you're going to talk to a group of um, maybe university students or college professors and you were going to try and tell them the ch uh, about the church or remind them that they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing, how well does a lecture work with people like that? <laughs> How well does a lecture work with a 14-year-old <laughs> who knows more than you do? Okay. Lectures do not work. I, 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 years ago, I wrote a little training manual called Lectures Are Lethal Things. About trying to how to talk to teens. Because lectures are lethal things. And, they, and when we lecture, we sound like uh, the adults on Charlie Brown cartoons. <laughs> okay. Is a lecture going to work in Zarahemla? No. Watch how he doesn't go down that road. <laughs> he's smart enough not to lecture. But he's going to do it in, in what is called the Socratic method. He's going to ask questions. Almost like an interrogation. And watch how he leads them very carefully by his questions. I say unto you, your fathers were delivered out of the hands of the people of King Noah. So we probably know that the majority of the people he's speaking to are the people of, of Alma. That particular group that came out of the land of Nephi. Listen to his father Alma's words. Waters of Mormon, land of Helam. It's probably, it sounds like it's primarily more that group. Okay? They were delivered out of the hands of the king Noah. Um, behold, you know that after they were brought into bondage by the hands of the Lamanites in the wilderness, they were in captivity. And again, the Lord did deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word. So he's going to go down this line of remember, remember, remember what? Yes. Now, let me pop over here for a second. 
There is an importance within a group of people in what we call institutional memory. It is a shared memory that we all have together that we can reference and it, all mean, and it means something to us. If you are a Jew, for instance, what is, what is in your institutional memory of God's mercy and love? Passover. Passover. Tracking back to what? Exodus. The Exodus. Okay, so you're gonna, in your institutional memory as a Jew, if you're going to reference things about the Exodus and Moses and the children of Israel and the Red Sea, that means something, doesn't it? We, you start talking in a, in a Jewish synagogue about the children of Israel, you don't have to go back and explain. Everybody gets it. We know that. And we celebrate it deliberately by commandment of the Lord every uh, spring when we celebrate Passover. Passover to include in the memory of... By the way, it says that the primary purpose of Passover is really focused on who? Kids. That's why the youngest in the room, you always start with, why is this night different than any other? What are we celebrating? What are we locking into the institutional memory of our kids, Jewish kids? It's a remembrance of the Passover, which is remembering the Exodus, and that's why we're eating bitter herbs, and that's why we're uh, doing all of those kind of things to remind us what God has done for our people. It's building institutional memory among the Jews. Do we do anything similar in our church? <laughs> Do we have an institutional memory around pioneers? And the, and the most uh, fervent symbol that we use of those pioneers is handcarts. So that's why we, we prepare and do handcart treks and reenactments and talk about it because we're building into our youth what? Institutional memory. We want them to remember the goodness of God and how, how great He has been in our deliverance. Okay? And that He's watching out for us. This past conference, when there were the talks about serving refugees, yeah. they very clearly in those talks says their story is our story not too long ago. They use institutional We're going to touch in, and it strikes a nerve. If, if we can say, remember when we were, remember how our church got to Utah? Ding! Our institutional memory goes, we're there, we understand, this is our history. Okay? And we take one more. Yeah, yeah. My questions might be a little bit awkward. I'm from, I'm not born. Yeah, you're not born here, right. Okay, so, institutional memory to me when I join a church, uh, pioneer, those things to me is like, uh, barely there. Uh, what's linked to me to the gospel is the scripture, but I, I really, until I joined the church over 15 years, and even you talk to the members outside of the United States, like we talk about religious liberty, those kind of things is more like a, uh, you know, the constitutional things. Yes. Uh, I became a citizen later, so I was sitting in the Elder Oaks, uh, the, the forum, I feel the importance, but I, I can sense my, the urgency in my heart is much less than all the members sitting around. So I, my question is, the institutional memory in the scripture, basically, 
I see that it's still divided by race, like a group. Yes. Maybe it's like Nephi, Lamanite, Lamanite, and so I... Yeah, if a group of saints in Taiwan uh, or, or ones in Ghana or something, the idea of a handcart trek is, is much more, it's not necessarily as much in their institutional memory. And they're having to find ways to say, what is it? But we begin to have pioneers in our own institutional memory as a people, uh, as a culture, as a society that may mean more to us actually than handcarts coming across the plains. And I think everyone can be tied together with the Savior's experience, with the atonement, because that's all, that's, um, yeah, everyone, yeah. it's for everyone. Okay, but watch, watch how Alma does this, though. Okay. Okay? Because you're going down the right... My question is, let me think, I, I think the race, race things matter still exist in the, in the ancient time. I, I want to learn, like, a... How do they solve the problem? Because they, they have each each tribe. Yes. They have conflicts. You know the. And they were very pluralistic in in Zarahemla, and that's why we're gonna. That's why things like the battle between the free man and the king man are gonna come from those that believed one way that it should all be the king of Judah. And, and the other one saying it should be more democratic. The, the Book of Mormon speaks very much about pluralism and how they tried to find that common ground. Okay. Now, we just celebrated, though, the, uh, this weekend. Any more institutional memory? Yeah. Yeah. There is in our memory trauma. And, and how were we? And how does, and a reminder of who we are that has an immediate impact on us. Anybody that was in this country, no matter what race or culture, is looking at that event, and it's a very traumatizing, but at the moment, you remember how unifying it was for those that lived through that? Okay. But this graduating class this next year of seniors in high school don't remember that event at all. This is one of the first gener this last couple of generations is the first one that would have no memory, no institutional memory at all of 9-11. It's already now in the rearview mirror. It's, it's a history lesson, but it's not an emotional first-hand lesson like it is for us. There's no institutional memory. Okay? So, look now at what, look where Alma goes. Verse 5, Behold, uh, well, 4, They were delivered out of the hands of the people of King Noah. And, and who was delivered? This is 148 B.C. Uh, they're going to come out about, 87, or, uh, about uh, 60 years before that. Oh, no. They came out about 148 B.C. This is now happening in 83 B.C. So this is their kids. This is their kids. Remember, he's trying to build this memory, remind them, remember that your, your parents, your, your parents and grandparents, you've, been, you've heard it talked about at home, remember how they were delivered out of King Noah. That, remember that uh, it was by mercy and power. And then remember that not all... Not only that, after they were then delivered out of King Noah, they went back into captivity, 
by the Lamanites, and then they were delivered by the power of uh, the word. Now, I will say, by the way, very interesting change here. Look at verse 5. I say unto you that they were in captivity, meaning fathers. Then he says that, and again the Lord did deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word, and we were brought into this land. It's the indication that we have. Where was Alma born? Alma the younger. In captivity. He's somewhere born during that 17 years that they are in the wilderness. So that, so that he is now going to be... So he, he's not going to remember being born, but he's going to be old enough when they show up in Zarahemla that he's part of this crew that then comes in and his dad is the, is the leader. Okay? So that means something to him. Uh, we were brought into this land and began to establish the church of God throughout this land. Now, he's going to start then to say, and, and Judy, notice that he didn't necessarily go to uh, the children of Israel. He's going to go to, list something that is specific to this group. You guys will remember this. We're going to build this institutional memory. I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to the church, suggesting what? There may be others here that aren't members of the church. You that belong to the church, have ye sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Yea, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long-suffering towards them? Now watch very carefully what he does here. So he's going to start with asking these questions. You remember that? Remember what happened? Remember how you're parents have always talked about that? Yeah. Remember, remember how they talked about how king, bad King Noah was? Yeah, we've heard about that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we get that. And then the Lamanites, we thought we were saved, and then we end up in the wilderness, and then we're into we're in bondage again, and then we have to be delivered, and he knocks the people. Yeah, there's all these great stories they've been hearing in primary and as they're growing up. Remember all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. End of six. And moreover, have ye sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? We're talking about a physical deliverance, and then very carefully, then Alma's going to take it to a spiritual deliverance. It's masterfully done. We're going to start with what you know. We're going to go to where I want you to go. And that's to talk about a spiritual deliverance, not just the physical. Does that make sense? And, he, and this, is how you, this is how it goes with an educated, kind of prideful, resistant group to begin with. He's going to very care, then he's going to walk through a whole series of questions here. Okay? Um... Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance these delivered their souls from hell? Now, let me throw one other thing in here. Uh, I'm going to throw a bunch of information at you. Have fun. If you hop ahead, just for the heck of it, to Alma 29, one of our, lot, we, we like the, this chapter. This is the, oh that I were an angel uh, psalm. 
that Alma's going to sing, oh, that I were an angel, because I had the wish in my heart, you know. And, uh, and oh, that I could be, which angel? My angel. Yeah. Oh, that I could be my angel and shake people up the way it shook me up. Oh, that I could be my angel. That's basically what he's saying. I just want to quote a little bit here. While he's reminding them, remember, 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 in his own little psalm, he's going to say, Yea, and I also remember the captivity of my fathers. For I surely do know that the Lord did deliver them out of bondage. Twelve, yea, I have always remembered the captivity of my fathers. That's important to Alma that we have that, that memory. Um, and I just think that's when we talk about remembering how well do we do with remembering in the church by the way? Where, where do we build on that institutional memory not just of our history but being delivered? Where? Yes, the sacrament and we do Always remember him. We're, we're trying to build that in constantly. And, and I do love that. And who is it that's speaking those words? Children. And we do always remember him. Who's always, who says that? Children. The priests do. Our youth do. We're building institutional memory of the Savior. Yeah. I think in families, um, we always remember the first thing the first children. We revere them. And we, how do we do that? Fa family history. Isn't that one of the purposes of family history? Well, it's not just that, though. I, I would imagine that probably everybody in here could pinpoint the person who was the first one in their family to join the church and revere that person for the blessings that they brought into our lives. And so we, we revere them. They right. Were when I look in when I look in my own family history, uh, the, the the history that's important to me is not just it's not just the Hinckley history that I trace back on one side and a Nelson history on the other, but like if I take my Hinckley line where did I learn the gospel? Where did it come into my family? Well, I track it back to um, Elder Johnny Page, who's sent by Joseph Smith at Kirtland to Upper Canada. And it's in that mission when he's given the coat. I don't have a coat. I haven't left yet. Well, here's my coat. Go. It's cold in Canada. I know. Here's the coat. Go. <laughs> he goes up and he contacts the Hinckleys in upstate New York in Bastard County and converts them there. In a sense, Elder Page's genealogy becomes my genealogy too because that resulted in him joining the church which then resulted in my family joining the church. His ancestor is also my ancestor by a conversion genealogy. Okay. Alright, so remembering is, as, as President Kimball said, remembering may be the most important word in all the scriptures. Okay. Alright, now, let's see, I'm going to go, um, uh, 
Now, Alma goes on to say, if we're talking to you about your people, here's what he's saying. Behold, he changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep. Listen to this great imagery. They and they awoke unto God. They were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. They were encircled about by the bands of death and the chains of hell. And an everlasting destruction did await them. And again I asked, verse 9, were the bands of death broken, the chains of hell? Yeah, they were loosed and their souls did expand. Oh, I wish we had time to go through that phrase. They were converted, their hearts were changed, and their souls did expand. Wow. So think about it, if you've been tightly wrapped, something, and you finally take the, the wrap off, how's that feel? I would imagine I don't have any I don't have any experience with pantyhose, but I think it has to be something. <laughs> I would think it would be something like that. <laughs> okay? They were loosed and their souls did expand and then and they did sing redeeming love. And I say unto you that they are saved. You get this process. Now in just a second he's about to go down the line of saying and how did that happen? But before we do I want you to look what I have here in in uh, the purple and whatever color that comes after that. What is that, mauve or something? Yeah. In 7 and 8. They were in the midst of darkness. Their souls were illuminated. Okay, they were encircled about by the... Okay, beautiful imagery, right? Is that Alma talking? Well, maybe. Okay, I broke it down here. Here is, here is Alma talking, and then I kept thinking, I have heard this, these words before. And I did a little search, and here's what I found. We get at almost the exact same time, about a hundred miles away, Ammon has been having great success among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And after all of these things happen, he sits down and writes out the Psalm of, Al of Ammon. And listen to the words that, he, that Ammon is going to use talking about how wonderful it was that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have joined the church. Many thousands of our brethren, he has loosed the pains of, of hell. They are brought to sing redeeming love. Wow. Now that, man, that's like... We have reason to praise him forever that he is our most high God. He has loosed our brethren from the chains of hell. They were encircled about with the everlasting darkness and destruction. Whoa! But he brought them into everlasting life and everlasting salvation and they are encircled. Guess what? Here's two, two inspired brethren talking about two different experiences at almost the same time, separated by about a hundred miles or more, rejoicing in the great things the Lord hath done in delivering people. How come they're, how come they're repeating the same stuff? 
They're, in, they're both being inspired, but not just inspired in the same concepts and ideas. They're being ex- uh, uh, inspired in the exact same words. The same, the, it is in context the same words being used. They grew up together. And they yes. From Alma and King Mosiah. Okay, you're getting closer. So, by the way, for Alma and for Ammon, these whole concepts would be pretty cool, right? Does it have a personal connection to them? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Revelation? Right. Yeah, and, and, and I think they're being inspired, and I think it's revelation. But isn't it interesting that when this revelation comes, the words are identical? It is. Right. So one possibility is is that the inspiration is coming but dictating word for word what they're going to say. They both had the angel experience too. They did both have an angel experience. So so what I think we're seeing here here's my own we don't know for sure but it's fascinating that when you start and I'm going to show you one more in just a second that when inspiration comes to Sue's separate prophets sometimes divided by thousands of years and the words are identical not just the, uh, the same idea but word for word a couple of possibilities one is it did come from an angel and they are writing down exactly what they were told the other possibility exists that they are quoting from somebody else they have something that they're, uh, that's available to them and there's other source material that they're looking at yeah, they want to make sure that you hear it and understand it yeah to the point and, and not just understanding it but the words are important they have to be said a certain way because this is the way the Spirit wants you to hear this. Now, by the way, coming through the mind of Joseph Smith, this could have been easily altered. But even the Lord through Joseph Smith is wanting you to hear this exact same phrases said over and over. Kevin, for those who are trying to link this in their scriptures, I think your reference is incorrect. It should be Alma 26, 13, not Mosiah. When I went to Lincoln. Oh, it is. You're right. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. I'm glad you picked up on that. It is. It's Alma 26. If you're trying, if you're being confused, okay. And I and I guess in the long run, it's more of an academic exercise to say, well, gee, did they have source material that they were both reading from, or did the Spirit dictate? I think the, the most important part to this, what our takeaway is, is that words are important. When revelations come, that not just any words will do, that the fact that a certain phrase is used all the time with different people tells us that we need to understand those words, because the Lord is repeating them for us. So that we can so that we can understand them. Okay. All right. Uh, now, there there is even a suggestion among some scholars that this idea of singing the redeeming love has some hearkening back to some temple uh, things with the temple of Solomon and some psalms uh, that are in there. Okay. Now, that said, so now let's go back to Alma five. How are we doing so far? We swimming? Okay. Sometimes 
the, the thing that I've appreciated about this class is that sometimes we can push it a little bit and be able to look in a little bit more in depth. Um, let, let's come back here though. He's going to say okay verse 10 now I'm going to ask of you on what condition were the people of uh, King Noah and your fathers how were they saved how was the process how did that process work notice he still hasn't preached to these guys yet <laughs> how were they saved how were they saved as you kind of look in these next couple of verses how were they saved the people under King Noah pretty wicked how did they go from there to being saved and sitting in Zarahemla What's the first thing that happens in, in uh, the land of Nephi? Who comes to preach? Abinadi. So Abinadi shows up, and remember, he's brought in before King Noah's court, and he preaches, and then what's the next thing that happens? Alma, Alma believes. And he's going to tell you that. Um, verse 11. Did not my father Alma... Believe in the words that were delivered by the mouth of Abinadi? Yeah, wow. And according to his faith, and he believed, according to their faith, there was the mighty change wrought in his heart. And I say unto you, this is true. Then what, then what does he do? Then he preaches to the people, and then what happens? They change. He preached the word unto your fathers and a mighty change was also wrought verse 13 a mighty change was wrought in their hearts and they humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God okay and they were faithful to the end that's how they're saved so so let's let's uh, go back and say how were they saved they trusted in a, but how did they trust in the Lord a prophet a prophet listened to the Lord a prophet believed a prophet taught they trusted so their hearts were changed that's how they were saved how were they saved? trusting and having faith in the words of a prophet and Alma's going how come I'm standing here in front of you? <laughs> by the way I was consecrated by my father as a prophet. a prophet just say I'm not saying it yet out loud they were saved because they listened to a prophet and the Lord changed their heart how you doing hi I'm Alma okay because that now this is exactly where he's gonna go he's got him going here now after all of this now we finally get to 14 I'm gonna hop over here because I I just thought this was so great here Oh, I didn't, oh, didn't make it on here. Okay. Fourteen. Now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church. All of this has been a setup to this moment. I ask you, my brethren of the church. You got this whole deliverance thing and how they were saved physically and spiritually 
have ye been spiritually born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenance? Have you experienced the mighty change in your hearts? Wow. Now, if, if I were writing this, and if I were speaking, I would just kind of go in direct order, right? I would say, okay, he delivered the people of Alma. They were saved physically. How were they saved? Uh, were they saved spiritually? Yes, they were. How did that happen? They trusted a prophet. Uh, they all got the mighty change, and they were saved. And then I would say, and how you doing? Have you been spiritually changed? Have you experienced a, um, a change in your heart? But it's fascinating that that's not what he does, is it? He says, have you been spiritually born of God? Then he says, what? Have you received his image in your countenance? Well, that's amazing. What, why would he suddenly begin to talk about this? Where did this come from? It seems like he's dropping in something that almost doesn't... Why would he suddenly be talking about that image in your countenance? Because he's talking about hearts. Were you saved? Yeah. How's your heart? Yep. Mighty change. Great. Why are we going to talk about countenance? about the image of God in their countenance. It's what they do. Okay. How they live. Okay. If you're, if you're going to receive that image, it, it might change what you do and how you live. What else? Have you received his image in your countenance? But break that down. What's he actually say? Put that in common terms. What did he just say? Have you... Uh, the thing, it made me think of... Um, in um, or excuse me, Moroni, Moroni seven, where they talk about charity. When you, he talks about having charity, so that when you see him, you'll be like him. Okay, and how will? Okay, if we saw that, that's right. So if we're going to be like him, if you saw the Savior today, and we have people, whether it's uh, Lorenzo Snow or Joseph Smith or even uh, Oliver Cowdery, we have these accounts of people that saw, have seen the Savior. How do they describe him? Bright. What else? Blue eyes. Blue eyes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Voice of, voice of rushing <laughs> Okay, voice of rushing waters. Yeah, 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 yeah. But is that the thing that stands out in them? Love. Yes. Yes. Those that describe it talk about, and even Joseph Smith in his own experiences, talk about this intense love that just emanates from his presence. Okay? And, and not only that, that intense love is so, uh, it, it's in his countenance. And how do, what would be another word for countenance? Face. Face, but it's more than face, right? It's in, it's in the appearance. It's in your visage. It is in, it's what emanates from you. It's, it, in New Age terms, it's in your aura. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to go there, but I... Uh, I know, that would be like really weird. We're going to talk about auras. Okay. 
No, it, it's what flows out. It is the sense and the feel. It is more than just the physical look, isn't it? It's a light of Christ. It is a light of Christ. But if you saw somebody that was like a 150 watt light of Christ person, yeah. what would they look like? It's like a glow. Yeah, it's like this glow. This countenance of glowing. But it isn't just light. It is love. Yeah. I see it in the missionaries. And I wish for them that they could retain that as they get home. Yeah, and then it kind of dims a little bit over time. It does. They're exposed to us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah. In other words, he's saying, if how would you know that either you or somebody else has experienced this mighty change that he's talking about? You will be able to see it and feel it. You will look different. And basically what he's saying is, have you been spiritually God, uh, uh, born of God? How do you look? How are you looking these days? And what you do and what you exude, how, how are you physically manifesting that? Can, can somebody who walks into a room, is somebody that spends some time with you, would they get a sense that you have been spiritually born of God? Not because you're going to give them a checklist and you're going to give, show them your temple recommend, but they would know it. Why? What they look at you, what they see, what they feel, what, what comes from you. That's what he's saying. So I think it's fascinating that he says, have you been spiritually born of God? How do you look? Do you look like somebody who's done that? Does it look, do it look to anybody else who might know you that that's happened? Have you experienced the mighty change? How would we know or not know? Well, that's pretty personal. Okay? Uh, if you'll read in... Uh, um, boy, I wish I could find him real quick. Both Moses and Joseph F. Smith both talk about countenance. Uh, Joseph S. Smith in, his, in section 138 talks about the people that he saw at, at the, in their countenance he read joy. He could see how joyful they were in the spirit world when the Savior comes to preach to them. Okay? All right. What's that? Each of us have a counterpart. We do. That we are. I had an experience that I was seeing one of our sisters conducting the music at church, and kind of a different kind, different kind of person. And the spirit touched me, and as I looked at her, I saw her countenance, and it was goodness and sweetness that was coming from her. And I saw that it was for another word, aura. Yeah. And I realized that we all have that. And it is what is inside us that's coming out. And he said, people see it and feel it and know it. it and here's the, here's the problem, and, I, and I, I didn't want to miss this. Th thank you for bringing that up. We tend to sometimes look at the mighty change and this change in our visage and in our countenance as an event. I was living my life to here, then it happened, 
And now on the other side of this, now I am filled with love and joy for all people. And it just continues on and on in everything that I do for the rest of my life. Amen. <laughs> Until my kids are yelling at each other or because I'm having a really down day uh, or until my husband loses his job or and then suddenly now my visage isn't quite so loving and beautiful and joyful. <laughs> now I'm having a really stinky day and I did yell at my kids and I griped out the person at Kroger's. <laughs> and that's all the proof that what? Well, I must not have had the mighty change. And now I can beat myself up for not being spiritual enough because I did yell at my kids today. Is there any way even for... How, how does this mighty change work? Is it an event? It's a process. It is a process. Okay. I think it's a process and I think... Um, I had someone kind of describe it as like going upstairs and sometimes it seems like we're, we're going backwards. Maybe we do slide a little bit backwards but sometimes it's just we have something new thrown at us that kind of sets us back a little bit. And yeah. Maybe it's because we're like oh what's this? I've handled this other stuff. I got it. Yeah. But that, but if I was if I had the mighty change I shouldn't be struggling with it quite so much. But right? it's a new thing to help us become stronger and refine us more and so there's this our countenance will continue to grow but we have these little or big huh? it's not you're saying it's not kind of a linear kind of thing we're going to kind of go like this yeah, yeah. Um, I was trying to remember the talk it was James and Faust um, was talking about the light in their eyes yeah right in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and he said you're going to stop proselyting but what about the light in their eyes yeah, we see it, and, 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 we and we love those moments, but what happens if tomorrow the light isn't quite so there? What if you struggle with some depression? What if you struggle with hormonal stuff? What if you struggle with, you know, thyroid problems? What if you struggle with, you know, there's a lot of things, yeah. Yes. Promise, the best I can tell, at baptism, we promise to keep the commandments and, and do those other things, and the promise is that we will always have the Spirit with us. Yes. We make those promises, and the promise back to us is that we will inherit all the Father has, and that includes becoming like Him. So when missionaries are giving all of themselves to the church, they are consecrating everything, and they're living. Sure. So then when we go to the Bible, I think, um, and then sometimes that contingent takes on, I wonder how much we're actually living our covenants. And I think about the people who I am really inspired by and who I feel really energized around, and they always happen to be people who I think are living their covenants. They're willing to give everything. And the more that we're able to do that. Yep. become more like the Father. Joseph Smith said that um, when he was talking about the attributes of God, that he is perfect. In love, that he is perfect in faith, perfect in justice, and and several other things. And I think as we live our covenants, we become more alive. Isn't that true? And, he, and that's what we're seeing, and that varies to how much we're living our covenants. 
And I think, but I think no matter how great a, uh, a missionary is in there and just comes back glowing and, you know, they don't even need a nightlight in the house because they got the return missionary recently, you know, and there he is and he's still glowing. I think part of what dims is not just the fact that there is a covenant, but now you have to interact with life. And the problem with mortality is that it's full of not so nice stuff. And you struggle with that. Yeah. Not feeling it today. Yeah. Remember. Remember how you used to feel. Okay. And that's what he's doing. He's reminding, he's not lecturing, he's just reminding what they already know. Yeah. As far as this discussion about this process of coming in and, mm -hmm. you know, gaining this countenance of the Savior um, and beating ourselves up because we're on this side and we're on this side, I have learned that for myself to, to, to judge more where I'm at, that's who. I need to judge myself. Um, I look at my reaction time between when I'm not, that happens on a day-to-day, and when I get back there. And that's how I measure my progress. How fast your resilience is back to... It used to be this far, now Beautiful. a little bit closer so that the bounce back is not quite... As it's not that I don't have those moments, it's how long it takes me to kind of get back. Beautiful. I love that. Now, I, here, here's one thing, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Oh boy, there's, and, and we're, what, verse 14? <laughs> this is always the problem with this thing. Um, we'll probably finish up five and probably then do seven uh, next week, by the way. When I started reading through Alma 5, and we're talking about deliverance and the mighty change of heart, and this is Alma the Younger, I kept waiting for something that never shows up in Alma 5. If you're, if you're Alma the Younger and you're going to talk about deliverance and you're going to talk about the mighty change of heart, what are you going to reference? Your own, your own experience. The, the angel. Let me tell you about the angel and the three-day dude. You know? And, the, and man, the event. I mean, let me give you my own experience of what that was like. Now, by the way, everybody knows that. This is a group that knows this experience. They were probably, their parents were the ones praying for Alma when he was weirding out. So they know that. And he could have said, their institutional memory would say, remember, I'm the one with the angel. They went, oh, yeah, we remember that. And, and I've been delivered and my heart has changed. Great. He never says that in Alma 5. What does he say instead? Okay. <laughs> they don't have that institutional memory <laughs> number one it's not as bright for them Strong. it's what they would have heard great point like 9-11 for us versus the seniors that won't feel it like you do right but he is going to include his testimony but listen to what he says <laughs> and it's sometimes this is, this is the answer sometimes when people say, I just wish my, my son who's weirding out, uh, I want an Alma angel. I want the Paul angel. I want the quick one. And just shake him up, shake the earth, you know, really bring somebody into his life. I hope he just gets, how that angel comes, just slaps him upside the head, and shakes him upside down and everything, you know, and a little, it's all right if he bleeds a little bit, as long as he comes back, earthquake would be wonderful, you know, turkey. <laughs> 
Listen, for those of you who keep wondering about that in your own life or for relative, here's Alma, the chance to say, well, we're talking about deliverance and all that kind of thing. Listen to what Alma says. Because you want to know, how was Alma converted? How was he saved? Verse 45. This is not all. Do ye suppose that I know of these things myself? Yes, there was an angel. We were, Yes. Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things thereof are true. And how do you suppose I know that of the surety? The angel! It was the angel. Behold, I say unto you, they were made known unto me by the, the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed these many days that I might know that these things are true. And now I know of myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. Moreover, I say unto you that it has thus been revealed unto me that the words that have been spoken by our fathers are true, even so according to the spirit of prophecy which is in me, and also by the manifestation of the Spirit of God. How did Alma know that these things were true? Was it the angel? No. no. He fasted and prayed for many days to know that these things were true and they were made manifest unto him by the Spirit of God. What's he really saying to this people? And you can too. Regardless of what you've heard about my angel experience, the way that I really know is not by the angel experience. The way that I really know is that I have fasted and prayed many days and by the Spirit of the Lord he's made manifested unto me and he can do the same thing with you. I think that's fantastic. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. Now, in between, we haven't even talked about him going after envying and strifes and, and everything that they were doing and what they needed to stop doing. But I just need you to see that he's bracketed this whole talk with, um, let's talk about deliverance physically, spiritually, and then I'm going to give you a personal witness at the end, how I was delivered spiritually, and guess what? It wasn't by an angel. It was by the sweet spirit testifying to me after I'd fasted and prayed many days. Going back to this talisman, you know, many of us in this room remember when Lance Wickman was here years ago. <clears throat> 25 years he's been the chief legal counsel of the church. You think of the heavy things on his mind and you notice his countenance as he spoke to the Yeah. Yeah, he was. It's kind of a lightness and love, even in talking about difficult topics. Yeah. Guys, I, I bear my testimony. This is, this is so masterfully done. This is really the first major address that we have by Alma recorded. Did he give a lot more of these? I don't know if he was so tied down by judging that he never got a chance to preach. But now we're going to get a series of addresses by Alma, and you get to see this kind of beautiful style. And by the way, as we look at Alma 7, where he's talking to the people in Gideon, notice that it's a completely different approach. Because he's not in a, he's not in a city, it's going to be more rural, and they're different. these people are a different level, and he's going to change how he speaks based on who he's speaking to. But his testimony is going to be the same. Uh, I, I bear you my testimony that's true, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have to do a closing prayer.